0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, a show for all things Jewish history and culture, Israel, and issues important to the Jewish community. I'm B'nai B'rith's CEO, Dan Mary Ashen. If you enjoy what we do, subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook for all our latest content. Today, we're delving into a fascinating little-known piece of Jewish history in the southern United States, of course, with a B'nai B'rith connection. In her upcoming book, Most Fortunate Unfortunates, Marlene Trestman explores the story of the long-shuttered Jewish orphan's home of New Orleans, the first purpose-built Jewish orphanage in the nation that reflected the city's affinity for religiously operated orphanages and the growing prosperity of its Jewish community. Marlene Trestman is the lawyer and the author of Most Fortunate Unfortunates, The Jewish Orphan's Home of New Orleans, which will be published by LSU Press in October 2023. Her first book was Fair Labor Lawyer, The Remarkable Life of New Deal Attorney and Supreme Court Advocate Bessie Margolin. Orphaned at age 11, she grew up in New Orleans as a beneficiary of the Jewish Children's Regional Service, the JCRS. The social service agency that succeeded the Jewish Orphan's Home. Marlene, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Dan. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, in your book, you cover a topic that is pretty much unexplored, so I'm really interested first in why you decided to write about the Jewish Orphan's Home at New Orleans. Through extensive archival research, you shed new light on B'nai B'rith's partnerships with orphanages and similar institutions in the South, and give readers a window uh, into the vanished world of the New Orleans orphanage itself. So did your own experiences inspire you to do this? And talk us through what drove you to tell this story, contextualized within Southern American and Jewish history, and the history of childcare.
1: Thanks, Dan. Um, Yeah, I was never looking to leave my law practice, but I came upon now two stories that no one else was going to tell, and I found myself uniquely qualified to do it. So I became a reluctant biographer, book number one, Bessie Margolin, and learning about her 12 years growing up in New Orleans' Jewish orphan's home before she went on to become an audacious trailblazing lawyer, woman lawyer in the New Deal, and then at the Supreme Court, I was more fascinated by what it meant to her life to grow up in the home. Because in that book, the first book, I certainly show what, what powerful forces uh, were thrust upon her and what impelled her to succeed and champion the cause of the underdog. So after not even, I guess it was before the Fair Labor Lawyer came out, I committed myself to learning more about the home. Bessie was there only from 1913 to 1925, a long time in her life, but only a fraction of the years the home operated, which surprisingly opened in 1856 and did not close until 1946. So there was a lot of story left to tell. And yes, my own upbringing as a Jewish orphan in New Orleans, who, if I had come along 20 years before, I am certain I would have lived in that same orphanage. That fact had a lot to do with me wanting to explore what it was like for those kids and whether they felt, as I do, that I was a most fortunate-unfortunate who was given the benefits and opportunities by New Orleans' very philanthropic Jewish community. But at the same time, and I'm sure we'll get into it, I, as an attempt to to write history, this was not hagiography, neither book. I pull no punches. Um, and I think if you've explored the book, uh, there are lots of stories that give the both the bad and the good of what happened to these children.
0: So founded in the 1850s, the home was the first purpose-built Jewish orphanage in the nation, did the home admit only real orphans, meaning uh, kids who had lost both parents, or did it recognize and assist people with financial hardship um, who had uh, problems that were just too great to keep one or more children? And what were the living conditions and situations like at that time?
1: Okay. And it's, taking those pieces apart, the the constitution of the home adopted in 1855 was to admit Jewish orphans and, as they were called, half-orphans, meaning only one living parent. Um, That definition became quite malleable uh, because the board, in a very um, philanthropic way, never wanted to create hardships. But there, and I give lots of examples in the book, where it confined itself very strictly to the letter of the Constitution about half-orphanhood, that is, they wanted to insist that there be only one living parent, but there were countless times where a a parent or both parents were simply incapable through infirmity or um, maladies or had simply left the territory um, so that children were admitted. And there was always the sense of need. No children, no child who had a family with the wherewithal financially to care for them, they're just, those children were not admitted. And the board did its due diligence to make sure there was not some surviving relative that could care for the children with or without some inheritance involved. Um, The living conditions in the home, of course, varied greatly throughout its 90 years of operation. And um, um, let me just back up a second. The reason, the impetus for the founding of the Jewish orphanage in New Orleans in 1855 were the devastating yellow fever epidemics that plagued the city in the 1850s. I mean, we... We know the horrors of the pandemic that we've lived through, but I don't know if we could comprehend what it was like in 1853 alone. The summer of 1853, 8,000 people perished in the city of New Orleans. That is just catastrophic. And I don't think anyone expected yellow fever to return again the very next summer, which is when the conditions were ripe for the mosquitoes which no one knew was the culprit to return and bring their fatal disease so the conditions were right in terms of there were becoming a significant number of parentless or needy jewish children who for whom one or both parents was no longer alive and jews in new orleans were of sufficient number by that time and of sufficient wealth not as wealthy as most of them many of them would go on to become but had the wherewithal to put together and build from the ground a Jewish orphanage. Um, My reason for so carelessly parsing the purpose-built Jewish orphanage is to make sure to give credit to Philadelphia's Jewish foster home, which actually opened a few months before New Orleans, but it was in rented space. It was vitally important to the board in New Orleans and it's clear through their minutes they knew they could garner far more support from potential donors and entitle themselves to better social standing in New Orleans by having their own religious orphanage to care for their children. So those those words are very carefully chosen to to, to give credit to what became fifty Jewish orphanages across the country at one time.
0: Who comprised the membership of the board? Who was serving there and how did they serve? How did they uh, manage to uh, move into those positions?
1: Many, and it was all men. Uh, although women played a very important role, they had no actual uh, uh, constitutional role and certainly no vote, but women's money was very important and women's roles, as I, as I uh, make sure to delve into in the book are there too. But I'm gonna talk about the men who were on the board and most of them, had already had some involvement in charity, charitable affairs in New Orleans, largely through the Hebrew Benevolent Association, like many larger cities in the United States or the nation at the time, where Jews populate, the first thing to happen even before there's a congregation, there was a benevolent society to take care of its neediest members. And for some time, New Orleans Hebrew Benevolent Association and its auxiliary, the Ladies Hebrew Benevolent Association was able to take care of the needy, but the yellow fever epidemics overwhelmed any ability of that, those organizations to do that. So a number of the officers of the Hebrew Benevolent Association decided that it was time to build a specific permanent residence, a home, an orphan's home. And they called it the home from the beginning. These men shared little. They ranged in age from the 20s to their 60s. Um, They shared little other than none of them were born in New Orleans. Many of them had come from other parts of the United States or from elsewhere and had immigrated to this country. But all of them were newcomers to New Orleans and were clearly seeking to establish themselves in the financial and social circles that they wanted to inhabit. Um, I go into great detail and also I encourage readers, I have on my website um, extensive an extensive online supplement where you can see the profiles of each of the 30 founders of the home as well as extensive socio-demographic data about the children as well as the 24 widows who lived in the home for some time um, as well as alumni profiles and uh, the list of all american jewish orphanages so i encourage anyone um, who's interested in either finding out more about an ancestor who may have lived there because I do also have the complete list of the residents of the home and the staff. Um, and that's in addition to all the stories that are told in the book as well. LSU Press told me it would be too expensive to put all
0: the appendices
1: in the book. So,
0: How big was the Jewish community uh, when the home was founded?
1: The numbers are imprecise. The best is somewhere between a um, and But it was still a very important Jewish community that many people up north don't really know much about simply because of people's perspectives, but you have to remember that um, Jews came to New Orleans, many Sephardic, back to the 1700s, who had been displaced into the Netherlands and to the Caribbean, and New Orleans was an exciting and financially lucrative place to be. So it attracted a number of Jews, and by the time the home opened, there were already two congregations, and soon three, um, that attracted people like any Jewish community of varying Jewish attitudes and manners of, of practice and socioeconomic status.
0: Now, the orphanage was established for nearly a decade before it forged a partnership with B'nai B'rith's District 7. B'nai B'rith always was organized on the basis of geographical districts. And within those districts, there were councils and B'nai B'rith lodges, it would be pretty logical to assume that institutions for parentless children proliferated uh, during the Civil War, uh, where and when there was so much deprivation and casualties of war in the South. But surprisingly, uh, the Jewish uh, orphan's home was founded a decade before that ended. So what, uh, what do you think at that point was B'nai B'rith, what was its role in, uh, in assisting or in supporting? um the uh, uh the orphanage uh, we had founded um a a big orphanage i think in ohio i think cleveland right? the cleveland. Yeah, cleveland uh Belleville i think they they called it later um,
1: not not that, until much much later was the cleveland jewish orphans home orphans a so,
0: right so i i knew of of that connection uh, but that was civil war related and this is yellow fever related, but not only that. So where did the B'nai B'rith connection come into all of this?
1: Um, wonderfully for me, Cornelia Wilhelm had written a book 10 or more years ago about the history of B'nai B'rith, which really helped me understand, just as you spoke about, the lodges and and how B'nai Brith as a national organization was operating. B'nai Brith, I learned from Cornelia and then with my own additional research, had attempted to set up a lodge in New Orleans uh, much earlier. Uh, I think it started, but it failed. It just didn't, I don't know why that didn't work. But it took until 1875, actually, um, longer. You know, the home was opened in 1856, so nearly two decades. Before B'nai B'rith reapproached or approached the home, and the home was quite interested in expanding its financial base, as B'nai B'rith could importantly do, and along with it, meant children would come for the first time largely from other states. The home had taken children in largely from New Orleans, almost exclusively, but it made exceptions where a city, like Mobile, Alabama, and Galveston, for example, were, had a sufficient Jewish community willing to set up an auxiliary where they would take charge of vetting the children, making applications, and remaining a contact because the home largely operated as respite care, whether it was a month, three months, two years, or 10 years, with the overwhelming number of children returning to a family member, if not a parent. Um, and so B'nai Brith approached the home in 1874, 1875. The home was very receptive to this idea. It, it needed additional money to operate. Um, and they, over, they rolled out the red carpet literally at the 1875 annual celebration of the home. When the B'nai B'rith District 7 delegates rolled up in carriages, the home uh, ceremoniously played a march. The delegates from B'nai B'rith were seated on the stage. The children performed as they did each year, showing the kind of care they were receiving. It was hard for the B'nai B'rith delegates not to want to invest their money there. So the official liaison was launched. The constitution of the home was amended to give a certain number of seats to the B'nai B'rith delegates, and this partnership continued until 1946, and then actually continued in some ways with the successor agency, although the home shuttered in terms of a residential um, location.
0: Let's talk about the children. Uh, In your book, you chronicle the transformation of what social work came to mean and how it evolved uh, and the understanding of of a child's development. Over the span of nearly a century, the 90 years, what early goals did the orphanage have for the children that it actually sheltered? And did the home's leaders and those who cared for the children have goals for their futures? And what kinds of people, men or women, uh, were selected to take care of the children on various levels? What was the staff like? Right. Um, The
1: goals originally were survival. Clearly when the home first opened, the idea was to provide permanent care, but one that addressed the immediate needs. There were children, and I talk about some in the book, wandering homeless who had lost parents or any surviving relative during the the yellow fever epidemics. There were women with very young children who were widowed because they lost a husband to yellow fever. And so the immediate need was to care and shelter clothe and feed these people, but to give them a shelter that would be a permanent space, unlike in prior years where it was more a hodgepodge and just um, crisis-related. So, But it quickly morphed into wanting to make sure that anyone who left the home, especially the children who left the home, did so with the capacity and this was a term that became more popular later but they had the capacity be, to become the architects of their own future in the early years there was simply there was a matron a woman who was under the complete control of the board and the wives of board members who were given honorary positions as honorary matrons who oversaw this one staff person entrusted with the well-being of the children Now, these matrons, and there were about five or six of them, and they're each detailed in the book, were either single or widowed. Um, And from what we can tell and what has been chronicled, did care for these children as best they could with all of this supervision and all of these layers. Literally nothing happened in the home where the board did not sign off for the purchase of the, the, the bolt of fabric, the shoes for Rosh Hashanah. The, the meat for eating, all of that was really between the board and the honorary matrons. But the children were seen far and above by the community as being very well cared for. There was it, sometimes it appeared almost philo that the surrounding community paid such gave such adulation to the way the board cared for the children. And there were only a few exceptions, which I go into in the book, and we know these from grand jury reports. The grand jury of Orleans Parish, New Orleans, was entrusted to go and visit the charitable institutions, of which there were many. And there were one or two reports where the home did not get the kind of rave reviews, and heads rolled and things happened to correct that. But again, as I said, warts and all, I I tell the story. Now, over time, given that the board, the all-male board decided that the home, as it was growing in size, taking in more children, needed a man, needed a male superintendent to deal with all of the problems and challenges of running the home. And that, that was the, by 1868, was the future of the home. It would be all men. And over time, these men, some of whom were rabbis, some of whom had been teachers, um, none of whom had come to the home with an actual social work background, but they were deemed to be appropriate for overseeing mostly the education and the future employment of these children. Very early on, the matrons of the home and then the superintendents Um, made sure that the children learned skills in the home. For the girls, it was largely needlework. And I'm talking about as early as the 1860s and 70s, needlework and learning to um, run a home, whether because they'd be in, in the employ of someone's home or as a married spouse who needed to care for her own home. And for the young men, they were apprenticed. And um, had woodworking uh, shops within the home as well to try to, to give them trades. But the idea of something more dedicated, something more skills building, really didn't set in until the end of the 19th century and really was cemented with the founding of the Isidore Newman School in 1903.
0: I wanted to ask you about um, education. What kind of education and religious training is the Jewish home? Um, did the kids receive? Uh, and um, tell us a little bit more about the Newman School, which was co-educational, non-sectarian, um, opening in the early 20th century. Very interesting and uh, mostly successful, one would say, experiment uh, in education. Tell us about that. Right, right.
1: Um, in terms of the religious education, the, the board of the home was very fortunate to have as its resident Hebrew scholar and religious leader, inspirational figure James Capel Gutin the reverend James Capel Gutin he was not ordained but he was one of the very important religious figures of the of the United States of his time and he was on the board from the home's founding and served the home until his death in 1886 um he was away for only two short respites we can talk about later one when he refused to pledge allegiance to the Union after the Civil War, and the second time a short-lived position at the very famous Temple Emmanuel in New York. But his heart was in New Orleans, returned and was there. Rabbi Gutim, from the start, was at the helm of the Home's Committee on Religious Education. And so the children were schooled in the home, largely by him, and later with hired uh, religious educators, in addition to their secular education that they received um, in, at, in originally in the home and then in the nearby public schools. And depending on racial and other disturbances of the time, the home would take the kids in and out of the public schools. But they were, it was a, a big public event each year when the children of the home would display their academic proficiency and their proficiency in Hebrew and religion. The board would come, the public was invited, awards were distributed. And so educating these children was always very important, one of the highest priorities for the home.
0: And the Newman School.
1: Yes, the Newman School. By the end of the 19th century, The board's members, despite some of the really glowing successes of some of the young men and women who left the home, realized that not all of its children were faring as well. There was an attempt to teach stenography, particularly by Superintendent um, Michelle Hyman, who, who saw that as a wonderful way to make sure the kids could get jobs. Only the best, because he did not want this winged art to, uh, given out to the best and the brightest so that they would shine. But there were a lot of kids and, and alumni were vocal about talking about their brethren who they felt were not as, could not fare as well in life. So by the end of the 19th century, there was a push to open a school for the orphans of the home and in the home. That was the first thought. It took a long time to get going. The home enlisted the aid of um, Dr. Bamberger, who came from Chicago and spoke of this new method that was very much in vogue called manual training, which should not be confused with today's vocational training. Manual training should actually have been called manumental training, but that just never stuck. It was the idea that the hand and the head needed to be taught at the same time, that one needed to learn to measure, to cut, produce, to think all in the same courses. And so it took a while, but by 1903, when the home had raised the money and with the very vigorous support of B'nai B'rith, which saw the benefits of having all of its children, I, um, it being given state-of-the-art cutting-edge education in this new school, uh, 1903, the home opened its school, but it had another agenda. It was no longer going to be uh, a school just for the orphans or in the orphanage. Instead, there was a thought very much embedded in the whole idea of the school that its children needed to be exposed to, learn side by side with children in the community. And as it turned out, the children from the community who could afford to pay the tuition at Newman for them to attend if they were not from the home, were the scions of the wealthiest families of New Orleans, Jews and non-Jews. And that was very, very intentional on the part of the home's board. They saw this as democratization at its best, that children from the home could be equals with the wealthiest in the city. And there was also the benefit that the children of the wealthiest would not only be able to procure this cutting edge education, but it would also be exposed to their less fortunate brethren. And that was very much the the, the mental and um, purposeful idea behind the school, and it operated by the orphanage until 1946 when the school became independently chartered and continues to this day. Interestingly enough, when the school was independently chartered, the home insisted, and the constitution of the school, the charter of the school, has a provision that said that any child who before would have been a ward of the home and of course would have gone to Newman as of right, would not be denied admission for lack of tuition as long as they could pass the entrance exams. And I may be one of the few modern day orphans who was able to take advantage of that. And I received a life-changing Newman School education because the subsequent board, when I came along in the 60s, petitioned Newman to honor that uh, provision in its charter. So I saw the benefits of learning side by side with children from middle-class and upper-class families where college was of course the next place to go if one didn't pursue some other sort of vocational um, training. And that was really very important to the socialization of the children in the home uh, to, to be so, uh, to connect with kids from other and obviously higher socioeconomic levels.
0: You know, knowing this, I mean, it just seemed that Newman, the idea, the concept for Newman was so far ahead of its time um, in terms of, of education, um, in terms of social evolution, um, that um, it's, um, it's, I assume, is that—is that another book, The Story of Newman, will that be?
1: It's in this. I mean, this tells, this is the origin story of Newman. Um, and I do credit the home Um, for seeing what uh, researchers today, social scientists like Raj Chetty talks about in terms of the way that, that social connectedness is the most important way to bridge the gaps between our most impoverished children and where we hope they will aspire to be in terms of uh, income potential and their place in society and their ability to become agents of change. So it really was tremendous foresight on the part of the Hum. And it also, I think the one of the many tales, lessons, cautionary tales that comes out of my book is, think of it in terms of today's most elite private schools where only a few scholarship kids come and they feel what that's like to be among the few and perhaps to feel that socioeconomic disparity, however good and well-intentioned the opportunities that befall them, it's wonderful. Newman put that on its head where it was the neediest children, Jewish children, and we're only talking white children at all because this was 1903 New Orleans, but that the neediest Jewish children of the community had a right to attend one of the finest schools of the city, and it was the children of the elite classes who had to pay and had to you know, ad, uh, apply to get a space to go there. So it, 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 I, I think that's a wonderful notion and, and should be thought provoking for anyone who's looking for socioeconomic diversity in, in, in schooling. But to go
0: back to the, the orphans for a moment, and you've talked about the, the, the Jewish elite uh, who served on the board, uh, who were involved, involved in the, the evolution of the Newman school. Did the did the local Jewish elite try to uh, adopt uh, any of the children or interface with them in, in any way?
1: Um, the interfacing is was also very intentional, long before this idea of, of having the children of the home learn side by side with the children of New Orleans elite, Jewish and non-Jewish. The idea of honorary matrons um, and what was expanded to be called Big Sisters. These were largely women of the Jewish elite who volunteered to pay close attention, to entertain in their home, to take for car rides, carriage rides, and to basically show these children the finer things in life. This was something that the alumni I spoke with, those whose oral histories had been captured, the influence on the home's children of being exposed to the lives of these women and their families was really life-changing. And some established relationships with these women and their families that lasted long before their time, long after their time in the home. Um, My first book with Bessie Margolin, I talked about how one of New Orleans socially elite Jewish women um, did this for Bessie and oversaw her transition to Newcomb, which was then part of Tulane, um, and 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 monitored and made sure that she was off on sound footing. And this was someone in very high echelons of New Orleans Jewish social circles. So there was intentional uh, interface this way. Not everyone had the best um, big sister, but for the most part, this really was a, a way of making sure these children were well socialized and well-positioned when on their own to make their way in New Orleans society or to return to their communities elsewhere in the South and, and be able to navigate themselves.
0: Did uh, some of the boys and girls achieve success? It, were we able to track uh, some of the, the careers uh, that some of them uh, entered into? And what about the kids who aged out um, once they turned 18? Did the orphanage extend some assistance in some way in placing them in in the community and in jobs or other kinds of um, situations which would uh, maintain their progress that they had made in the orphanage?
1: Right. Um, In terms of the some of the more illustrious achievements of alumni of the home. Um, I do chronicle quite a bit of that in the book. And they ranged from, and I'm talking back to the 19th century. There were lawyers. There were newspaper people. Uh, one woman was instrumental as a founder of Hadassah in Texas. Um, there were people who became influential in establishing their congregations in all parts of the South. Um, people of all types. And, and this is in addition to Bessie Margul and perhaps you know, one of the acclaimed alumni, alumni of the home who made her way as the, the, the chief champion of the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Equal Pay Act and went on to argue 24 times at the Supreme Court. Um, yes, there were quite a few. And there were people who lived quiet lives, caring for their families, which is also a wonderful accomplishment given that they came to the home in some of the most unfortunate circumstances. And there were a few that I also mention in the book who, who did not become poster children for the orphanage, as you would expect. Uh, one gentleman who was the fifth child ever admitted to the home went on to become a drummer in the Confederacy, left a trail of bankruptcies in hotels in Baltimore and elsewhere, um, and uh, made his fame by a million dollar jury verdict at the turn of the 20th century against some of the largest railroad tycoons of the country. So he was a little bit more infamous. Um, And I did try to track them because not all of these people mentioned the home, when when they achieved their height or in their obituaries, many did. It was considered a badge of honor for many alumni of the home, but not in all cases. There was a second part to your question. Uh, I'm forgetting.
0: Did once they turned 18 and they aged out, um, did the orphanage or the board provide any kind of um, not I don't know a safety net necessarily, but kind of assistance to them uh, to uh, move on into the larger world?
1: Aftercare was the term that became more popular closer to the end of the 19th century. Um, And 18 is actually quite a high age for the 19th century. 13, 14, and 15 in New Orleans, certainly, um, by that point, children were expected to be beginning to earn a wage, either as an apprentice in a profession or in some other capacity but the home did not have a steadfast age at which it necessarily discharged children. Sometimes when the home got more crowded than it could bear before it enlarged, it often turned and looked for surviving parents to to reclaim their children simply because the needs of incoming children were great. But there are lots of cases where children, children, remained in the home or worked there into their 20s. So, and that was into the early 20th century. Um, But in the 20th century, graduation from high school was usually seen as the discharge point. But again, only if there was a B'nai B'rith Lodge or a parent or a relative that to whom the child's care could be entrusted and overseen. There was very little in terms of uh official formal statistics and review of seeing where all of the children went to there was talk more and more talk about doing that aftercare became something that was more of an intention intention program in the 20th century and the home did establish what it called non-resident wards particularly where someone had graduated from high school and just needed a little support, whether it was payment or for lodging in a boarding house, in a boarding house, the home approved. So they were still under the auspices of the home, but were either going on to college, as many of them did. Bessie Margolin, for example, became a non-resident ward when she went to Newcomb and then Tulane. Um, and once she graduated from Tulane with honors on her way to law school, she was formally discharged from the home.
0: Of course, we can't uh, forget about the need for recreation and culture. I want to talk about that as well. Were there sports teams, uh, theater groups, uh, music education? Um, And then there was the all-important Mississippi summer camp, too. Uh, It seems that the camp furnished the experience that was the most liberating for the children, as summer camps often are. So tell us about that.
1: Absolutely. I'll start with The earliest forms of recreation and its entertainment, music education, appears in the home by the 1870s. Donations of pianos and violins and the children performing at the big annual celebrations was recorded by the newspapers and lauded. And like other Jewish orphanages, by the turn of the century, the home had its band which performed and regaled the city at Mardi Gras parades and in Boy Scout marching parades and other places and admitted girls, even though they were given separate musical um, instruction, the home band admitted girls by about the 19 teens, you know, neck and neck with suffrage taking over. So lots of that. And yes, there were sports teams within the home And in fact, I I thought it was sort of funny that you would see newspaper reports in the 19-ought-somethings of the Hebrew orphans playing the Methodist somebody or the Catholic somebodies. Um, And, you know, there would be J-O-H, Jewish Orphans Home, on the jerseys of the kids from the home as they played these various games. Scouting was important. Clubs proliferated in the early. By 1909, the appearance of clubs was an intentional part of life in the home. Um, and there was the Brandeis Club, which took on weighty issues and, and, and debated those. And there were clubs for every, every interest that a child or her, his or her friends could come up with to promote. But that was all very insular. It kept the children within the home. And a more progressive superintendent who had come to the home, in fact, his background was with B'nai B'rith in its central office and later with the Anti-Defamation League, when he came to the home, he sought to disband all insular activities and put the children in the community. So if they were going to play in a band, it was either going to be in the school band or in a community band. If they were going to be in a scouting troop, it was in the community scouting troops, clubs as well. And so it was very intentional and it coincided, interesting, with disbanding and closing what had been this precious gem of a little synagogue in the Jewish Orphan's Home on St. Charles Avenue and having all of the children of the home assigned to one of the three reform temples that were all in walking distance or a short streetcar ride away from the home. But the insular nature of life in the home ended by the end of the 1920s.
0: In the summer so, camp?
1: Summer camp, um, along with the rise of summer camping across the country, and readily adopted by the Jewish community early in its life, by 1917, New Orleans was looking to provide needy children through the Jewish Federation, the summer camping activities, and the home superintendent loved the idea. And by 1919, if not 1918, started the children of the home first a week, then later two weeks, And by the 1930s and 40s, it was well a month, if not more, of summer camping at Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, which uniformly, by every alum who ever left a record, was the most wonderful experience of their time in the home, just like we know camping is today. Jewish summer camping is, is its own legend. I'm a product of eight years of Jewish summer camping respite for families especially for kids who often are not coming from the best environments or need outlets and exposure um, and so these were just wonderful outlets for the kids um, and i think shows the progression of of summer camping and jewish summer camping across the country
0: well, we have time for just a couple more questions uh, and one of them is to kind of tie everything together Take us from New Orleans during the Depression to the last years of the orphanage right after World War II. Um, were orphan children still being admitted? Uh, there, at this point, there were hundreds of alumni, clearly. Um, were they nostalgic, the, the alumni, about their experience? Um, you've talked about summer camp. Uh, and did they support the institution? Were there reunions? How did, how did that all work?
1: right the alumni association of the home like other jewish orphanages um the homes alumni organization was founded in 1891 and it was um, by grateful alum who wanted to pay back their alma mater and also to make sure that any of their brethren their fellow alums were if they um, encountered challenges in life had a support mechanism and yes there was a great affinity not by all but huge numbers of alumni turned up, not only at the annual events or alumni events, but also those in town regularly attended the Passover Seder in the home. That was considered a big deal. Alumni returned for that with their families. Um, And they would turn, there was alumni uh, kid uh, baseball games on the weekends, on Sundays, that was more in the 20th century. Alumni in Texas had their own reunions because such a, Texas was the second largest, the the state with the second largest number of children to send kids into the home. A total of 394 children were admitted to the home from Texas alone. Um, And so there was a huge contingent there, largely in Houston. They called themselves XHKs, X home kids, and had their own reunions very regularly. Many of them spoke about their time in the home, whether they had their own siblings or not. They talked about the joys of growing up with 150 other brothers and sisters. And some of the children of those alum felt that they had dozens and dozens of aunts and uncles as extended family because of the home. And again, not everyone, but many. I realize I didn't touch on something you asked me about before, and that was adoption. Um, It was never the goal of the Jewish Orphans Home in New Orleans, which I think was consistent with most other orphanages. Adoption was not a primary goal. It really was to return children when possible to their own families, uh, whether it was married siblings, uh, relatives, or a surviving parent. There were some adoptions, they're chronicled in the book. Um, and adoption in general was. I guess I also track the history of adoption, which was not a common thing. This notion of being officially raised legally by people who were not your biological parents, and also having rights to inheritance and a share legally in in their in their stead. Um, and I forgot in the second the rest of the current question. Well, I have
0: I have one last question uh, before we conclude. Uh, you you celebrate the Jewish orphan homes. Uh, many triumphs and talk a lot about some of its failures too. Uh, What do you want readers to take away from reading Most Fortunate Unfortunates? What are the overarching historical lessons that you hope people will reflect on after reading the book?
1: First and foremost, the book was written largely to chronicle the ancestors of so many descendants who contacted me throughout this book to learn more about their own family members some of whom knew only bits and pieces and others who supplied me with wonderful amounts. So there's the whole genealogical side that's a really important part of the book. And that's why the online supplement is so important to me that people who could not make it into the book are chronicled on the website. But the biggest takeaways, I think, from the book, and what I want people to see are also cautionary tales and lessons. If nothing else, having served myself on various nonprofit boards, is making sure that at every time you're really meeting the mission and whether the mission needs to be revisited in terms of changing status and and changes in the way the particular cause is cared for. And in particular, the issue here with children was whether an institution, a physical space dedicated to the group raising of children was the best way to care for these kids. Throughout most of its time, it achieved great success in giving parents, if one or more survived, respite and reclaimed children, knowing they had been in a stable environment. But the lack of foresight, the lack in New Orleans, the lack of legal structures to really push foster care and more individualized attention i think was a shortcoming on the board's part and i delve into that in detail in the book but it was not it's not uncomplicated new orleans was was one of the last adopters of foster care B'nai B'rith and all of the other funders were not pushing for foster care. They were happy to have these children so well cared for and having the finest education, medical care, clothing, et cetera. Um, The other thing is to not become, again, for nonprofit boards and people who serve in them, building bound. A big theme of this book, in fact, where we started when I talked about that this was a purpose-built institution I think the fact of this beautiful building, when it was built, it was considered a magnificent monument to Hebrew benevolence. The existence and the care and feeding of the building, I think drove the home to become a residential institution probably far longer than it needed to be. But people took such pride in having this Jewish institution, in fact, other than cemeteries, it was the longest standing Jewish institution in New Orleans that was built for and and cared for Jews. And that was very important at the founding. So to not become building bound, to constantly revisit um, what one's mission is, and to make sure you reevaluate what's going on and be transparent about it. The home was great in many, many things. And it also perhaps could have fared better by its children in other ways.
0: Most Fortunate Unfortunates, The Jewish Orphan's Home of New Orleans by Marlene Trestman is available for pre-order wherever you purchase books and will be released this October by LSU Press. And you can learn more about her work and her life journey at MarleneTrestman.com. Marlene, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a fascinating a story, uh, one really that had not been explored uh, hitherto. Uh, and uh, we're glad you did it.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to my guest, author Marlene Tressman, for joining us to talk about her book, Most Fortunate Unfortunates, and to you for viewing our program today. Now, we hope you enjoyed what you've heard. If you did, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating. And for all of our latest content, and if you haven't already, Follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and like us on Facebook. For my guest, Marlene Trestman, this is your host, Dan Ashen. Until next time, take care, everyone.